Hey, welcome everybody. Andrew Holacek here um, with a very special guest and a, a wonderful friend, um, Tucker Peck. I wanted to introduce him to you and then we're going to uh, launch into some really, I think, rich, provocative topics. Um, and I will share with you one of the reasons I find my time with Tucker so unique because he really is a special individual. So um, Dr. Tucker Peck, PhD, is a clinical psychologist, meditation teacher, and sleep expert. He received his undergraduate degree from Boston University studying sleep. Uh, Brown, actually. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. Brown University studying sleep and circadian rhythms. <clears throat> and he earned his master's and PhD under the late Dr. Richard Woodson, um, founder of behavioral sleep medicine. Tucker is a faculty member of the University of Arizona's College of Medicine Sleep Fellowship and an insomnia therapist on a research project with the University Medical Center. In meditation, he studied first under Sharon Salzberg and then under Chula Desha, <laughs> who approved him as a teacher. And he now teaches meditation retreats and workshops around the world. And this is the really cool part. Tucker is in the process of launching an awesome new site, www.drugfreesleep.com. And this is uh, quite a bit of what we'll be talking about. This is an online course about overcoming insomnia, which is he's, he's very expert in. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us here, Tucker. And really, as I mentioned at the outset, one of the reasons I'm so excited to get to know Tucker better and to have him on with us is that not, not only does he bring a wealth of scientific knowledge um, around this material, but he's also uh, very well seasoned, trained and disciplined in the meditative arts. And this is completely resonant with, with my approach, with the approach of nightclub altogether where we try to create this, this very broad spectrum approach that can target so many different avenues um, you know, along these really rich topics. And so we're going to be exploring both the science and the kind of the meditation um, behind sleep and to whatever extent dreams. And what I wanted to start with right away, um, Tucker, with your permission, because this obviously is your forte, and this is where we get a lot of questions um, I have personally received questions like this, uh, you know, in my own clinical practice, I'm treating sleep disorders, um, and also now we're starting to get more and more traffic around this on our website. And this, of course, is, I believe, the number one sleep disorder, right, of the hundred or so that are out there. I think uh, insomnia tops the charts. Is that a fair thing to still say? Yeah, I think that's probably right. Yeah, cool. So I want to approach this topic with you on, on several levels. First of all, um, I want to open the, the floor for you and just have you share with our listeners some general overview um, kind of comments about insomnia altogether. And then um, I want to dovetail into the non-medicinal approach to that, you know, whether herbal supplements and the like can help. But, but most particularly, as we talked about uh, you and I previously, the incredibly uh, important role of CBTI. Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia and your expertise in that. So um, let's start with just some general comments about your, your experience with insomnia as a clinician. And then also, um, well, let's start with that. Start with that open kind of question and then let's talk a little bit more targeted about how some of these other modalities can help. Because, I, mean, I suffer yeah. from this uh, you know, annoying condition. I think there's very skillful ways that you can bring insights to our listeners so they can transform this obstacle uh, even into an opportunity. So let us um, 
Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks so much for having me on your show, by the way. I, um, I, I emailed all my students, uh, or I, I asked them in the classes, you know, did they listen to it? And this one student, Georgia from Bosnia, was like an absolute fanboy and knew everything you had ever done. <laughs> so I was, I was very excited to be here. Oh. Um, so uh, insomnia seems absolutely ubiquitous. You know, normally if you're making small talk with somebody and, and say, what do you do? Oh, I'm an engineer. Oh, okay, okay. And I say, oh, I treat insomnia. Nobody just smiles and nods. <laughs> Everybody wants to talk. Um, the reasons that insomnia has become such an epidemic are pretty varied. It's often blamed on cultural factors like an emphasis on productivity, on the amount that you do being the primary judge of your worth. Also factors like it used to get dark when the sun set and you wouldn't have anything other than quite dim firelight until the sun came back up. And uh, nowadays there's constant light, there's uh, 24 hour activity and things you can be doing. Uh, most of us are like deeply addicted to the internet. And um, I'll go ahead and confess, even as an insomnia doctor, I opened my phone at midnight last night <laughs> to, to see what was happening on it. Um, so we would talk about three different places you'd find insomnia, which would be trouble falling asleep, trouble staying asleep, so frequent wakes up, wake ups or uh, wake ups with a long duration, and then trouble uh, sleeping as long as you'd like to. Um, I used to go every year to the, uh, the conference is just called sleep. It's the big conference on sleep research. And there was this running joke that every presentation was the same. You took some problem X, uh, tried to figure out whether healthy sleep made it better or worse, what was the effect of insomnia. And it turns out problem X is made worse by insomnia. And, and uh, uh, the joke was that this was the whole conference. <laughs> um, yeah, insomnia tends to exacerbate just about every other problem. This study I'm working on at the moment is investigating questions related to um, when people get out of the hospital, uh, what sort of relapse do they have if they are insomniacs versus if they're sleeping well? The data that's out there is depending on what sort of disorder you have, it's four to 10 times more likely that people with insomnia will end up back in the hospital than people who are sleeping well. Wow. And so what do you, you know, what have you found um both personally, if you've ever been afflicted with insomnia, and I suspect you, you probably have some episodes like virtually every human being on this planet, <laughs> uh, what have you found personally to be of, of benefit for you? And then specifically, um, CBTI, because my understanding is that's one of the most effective non-medicinal approaches. But let's start with your own experience. I mean, how, how have you worked with it within your own life experience? Yeah, I get insomnia sporadically. It'll come for a few weeks intensely and then go. Um, this is a cheap trick, but one of the one of the components of uh, CBTI is the cognitive therapy component, which is examining your beliefs about sleep. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that what you think about sleep really quite heavily determines how insomnia is going to affect you. So a lot of people will endorse the statement, if I don't get eight hours of sleep, I cannot function. Um, I think most therapists have had a few like legendary patients, the ones that they just talk about forever. And I, I had a man who was 
in his 20s, uh, was a self-made millionaire, um, very happily married, and he endorsed the sentence, I cannot function on less than eight hours, and I haven't gotten eight hours of sleep since I was a teenager. You know, if what is functioning if you're not doing it? <laughs> yeah. Um, so honestly, the biggest help for me, which might sound like a cheap trick, has been the recognition that short-term sleep deprivation is really not that bad. Um, one night of even extremely bad sleep, if you stay like mindful of the consequences, generally isn't that bad. Um, one very bad night of sleep generally makes your next day a little bit worse and then leaves you exhausted by the end of that day and able to fall asleep. So this has been the most helpful thing for me is if it's 2 a.m. and I can't sleep, to get up and read a book and realize it doesn't super matter uh, whether I'm going to be able to sleep tonight. So, Tucker, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that, um, like from a clinical point of view, uh, one isn't considered a, an insomniac until there's a certain kind of constancy of, of sleeplessness. In other words, one night, from a clinical point of view, doesn't really characterize you as someone suffering from insomnia. It has to be for a particular duration before that clinical diagnosis is actually made. Yeah. I would say in practice that clinical diagnosis is not terrifically helpful. Um, I wish I knew it off the top of my head. It's something like 30 minutes or more of sleep onset latency combined with some other factors, more nights than most over a period of a few months. Um, Clinically, I don't think anybody's going to say, well, it was 28 minutes, so it doesn't count. Please go home. Um, right. if, <laughs> if, if somebody says they can't sleep, uh, I'll, I'll treat them. Yeah. Yeah. And can you say then a little bit more? I mean, you know, we're, we're kind of circumambulating this, this topic of CBTI. And, um, and I know a large part of what you'll be doing with your site will be working with that. But I'm sure a lot of our listeners are not familiar with cognitive behavioral therapy um, as a generic tool, let alone CBTI. So can you tell uh, a little bit about both those? What is cognitive behavioral therapy? Yeah, sure. So cognitive behavioral therapy is a a multi-component package. Probably the most commonly used or commonly known part of cognitive behavioral therapy is this notion that your thoughts are lying to you in pretty predictable ways. Mm -hmm. And that it seems that it doesn't matter how inaccurate the lies are, uh, we just tend to believe them automatically uh, without addressing them. Fake news, right? Yes. Yeah, that, that's right. That's right. There's this internal fake news ticker, um, and it, it tends to lie in pretty predictable ways. So it tends to be extreme, right? So your thoughts tell you you're an idiot, you know, nobody likes you. And it's hard to find anybody that like truly nobody likes. The thoughts also seem to be totally unrelated to reality. It doesn't matter how many people like you. When the thought comes up that you're an idiot, that you're a failure, it doesn't matter how many things you've succeeded at or how many people like you. It tends to be extreme. It tends to be personal. So when other people fail, our automatic response is often compassionate, right? Um, That was hard. I'm sorry. Uh, When I, I, I use this example in my intro meditation classes, everybody has meditation homework. Suppose the person next to you comes in and says they didn't do your homework. Well, it's okay. You know, like you'll do better next week. Everybody gets busy sometimes. Okay, now pretend you didn't do the homework. Are you saying it's okay? No, nobody's saying that. (laughs) So 
cognitive behavior therapy in general, one of the components of the treatment is uh, looking at the way in which your thoughts are inaccurate and taking your thoughts as scientific hypotheses. So looking at evidence for and against various thoughts so you can get a more accurate worldview. Uh, that component of CBTI involves looking at thoughts like the one I was mentioning of, I need eight hours of sleep to function. Um, the idea that sleep deprivation is bad for your health, this is certainly true in the long term. This isn't especially true in the short term. In the 60s, there was a guy that stayed awake for 12 days. And um, while other people, that, that radio DJ uh, uh, had extremely bad luck with his 12 days. Some people can stay up 12 days and largely be okay and live normal lives following them. So, you know, the thought that if I don't sleep tonight, I'm going to uh, be sick, I'm going to die younger and things like that. Uh, you hold these up to the evidence. And the idea is the more that you realize the thoughts are false, the less sway they're going to have over you, the less they're going to affect your emotions and behaviors. Right. Beautiful. And, and this obviously dovetails really elegantly with meditative principles altogether, does it not? Where a large part of what we do in meditation, and this is the track I want to take it now, because a lot of people have questions around this, um, Tucker, is that, you know, as you know, I think we would agree that a large part of what meditation does is not so much like change or stop the display of the mind. Um, in fact, I, I often uh, share with my students that, you know, on one level, really, Meditation doesn't change anything out there, even out there at this point being one's thoughts. What it does do is it changes the way you relate to what's out there. And so to me, what I'm hearing here, and I'd love for you to, to talk more about the confluence of CDTI, your clinical expertise, and also your meditative training, about how it seems to me, and I, I speak from my own experience with um, you know, episodic uh, episodes of now, insomnia on my end, it's changing one's relationship. That seems to be one of the central narratives I'm hearing from you. Is it's really about altering one's relationship to phenomena. Um, in this case, uh, what we deem to be an untoward state of mind, i.e. insomnia, and how it can be you know, really uh, completely um, antiproductive um, and even exacerbating the situation to develop a kind of adversarial relationship to the insomnia mind. You know, I, I find... Um, that very often what, what tends to make insomnia so much worse is, you know, we just we start to wrestle with our mind. We wake up and it's like, you know, you're throwing your mind onto the mat and trying to pin it down and <laughs> really relating to it in ways that, that are completely counterproductive because your mind will always throw you back off. And the next thing you know, you know, you're, you're spinning yourself into a total knot and becomes this really kind of sad, self-fulfilling prophecy. But so talk to us a little bit about both your personal experience and your clinical experience, bringing these two amazing worlds together because they really do seem to be highly complement to me. Um, I think they're highly complementary. Um, so I the meditative style that I teach d does come from an early early Vajrayana. Uh, Chuladasa's model is the most common style of meditation that I'm teaching, and, and this comes from like the the Kamala Shila ten stage. Uh, uh -huh. Samadhi uh -huh. model, but the, the Dharma that I teach is pretty exclusively Theravada. And at least from the Theravada Dharma, what we know in modern psychology is, is as far as I can tell, both absent and necessary. So the way that you would deal with thoughts through cognitive therapy versus through mindfulness is actually pretty different. 
Cool. And I think both approaches are generally necessary. Uh, in mindfulness, it would be recognizing the thought is just a thought. And recognizing the thought is just a thought is agnostic to content, right? Uh, you don't have to care what the thought is. In a lot of schools of meditation, when you become more advanced, you don't even know what the thought is, right? Your, your ability to uh, do what you want to do is good enough that the thought just comes and goes. And you might know there's thinking or not thinking. But what the thinking is about is really incidental. Mm -hmm. um, Western psychology generally focuses on psychological content in, in a way that at least my schools of meditation really don't except in the early stages. So this idea of like, you think you need eight hours of sleep, listen to that thought, argue with that thought. This is really kind of the opposite of what, what I think we would, we would teach people in mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so what, I mean, what is your, your go-to then? I mean, do you, do you find yourself engaging in both approaches when you're working with, with your own clients with sleep disorders like this? I mean, how do you, how do you kind of parse those out and, and yeah, my first teacher was Sharon Salzberg, and she used to say this thing a lot. Uh, the Buddha's enlightenment solved the Buddha's problem, now solve yours. <laughs> um, I feel increasingly convinced that there's no one right path. There's no panacea. So um, cognitive behavioral therapy for, for a Westerner is an easier sell than mindfulness. There's nothing theoretically complicated. Some postulates are right, some postulates are wrong. Your thoughts are postulates, hypotheses, test them, see if they're right. Um, it's really easy to explain this. Some people get a lot of freedom from their thoughts, realizing they're wrong, creates this kind of a acceptance commitment therapy, we call it diffusion. It's a similar concept to mindfulness, like a de-identification. Yeah. Um, Whereas for other people, it's just arguing, you know? Now, one voice is saying, you'll never sleep. The other voice is saying, uh, sure you will. The third voice is saying, shut up, I hate all this yelling. Um, in that case, I would move somebody to mindfulness. I always give people both approaches and see which one sticks for a given person. And so maybe say a little bit more because we, we, we had one question in particular from a, a member um, wanting to know specifically, like say for instance, people who have a little bit more of a meditative disposition, they're already engaging in some sort of mindfulness or, or whatever their particular practice might be. Um, how might you talk to them about supplementing, augmenting their meditation for insomnia? Like let's say, let's say for instance, you wake up at 4 a.m., um, you're all spun out in, in a, an episode of insomnia, what type of meditation approach might you suggest? I mean, would you recommend people at that point, if they're meditatively inclined, to um, actually sit up in meditation, for instance? Or can they take an analog to like Savasana and engage in their practice when they're lying down? Um, so maybe talk to us a little bit about how exclusively if you're engaging in meditation as an antidote, how might you engage with that Yeah. I'm going to give a very uncommon answer to that question. Um, so the research I did my uh, master's and PhD on was how meditation practice affects sleep. And it turns out that on every conceivable subjective measure of sleep, meaning mm -hmm. rating how deep your sleep was, how well rested you felt, and so on, the more you meditate, the better your sleep becomes. On every objective measure of sleep, uh, 
different stages of sleep, uh, awakenings, total sleep time. The more you meditate, the worse your sleep is on every conceivable objective measure of sleep. Um, I ended up not being able to publish this, um, but there were several other people who found something similar and published it that the word Buddha literally means someone who is awake. And meditation is about cultivating wakefulness. So I keep a crossword puzzle and a book on Buddhist philosophy on my nightstand. And mm -hmm. if I can't sleep, I get out of bed and I do something. Mm -hmm. um, I generally don't meditate. Um, that's a practice of waking the mind up. Exceptions would be things that really aren't trying to cultivate mindfulness. So in at least in the way I would normally teach meditation, dullness and uh, meditation are, are opposites, you know, and you're trying to cultivate dullness. You're trying to make the mind dopey and weak in order to fall back asleep. So some kind of like just deep breathing, um, yeah. a gentle body scan where you're not trying to increase the clarity of perception, maybe something like that. But, but personally, from all the years of meditating, it's just too ingrained in my head that meditation is about getting your mind sharper. So um, that's a this is worth talking about, if you don't mind me engaging with yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, of course, Andrew. Uh, yeah, this is really interesting to me because, to me, what I'm hearing here, Tucker, is you know when we talk about med meditation, of course, it's like sport. Um, it, it, it's a catch-all term which subsumes just a whole battery of yeah. meditations, as you know. And and probably the two overarching classifications of meditation are mindfulness, awareness, shamatha, vipassana, and so. To me, I think it might be helpful to toss around a little bit that those those entities, those shamatha and vipassana, are obviously deeply connected, but they're not the same thing. Um, and the reason I put this forth is I believe that, for instance, the, the quiescent component, the shamatha component, literally tranquility, quiescence, um, that that one, um, in my experience, can be used effectively to kind of you know, calm the mind down, slow the mind down, because very often, um, you know, what happens in my mind when I'm uh, highly uh, afflicted by insomnia is my mind gets really speedy, it gets really windy, and my thoughts are like traffic jammed and, you know, bumper to bumper, and there's literally no space between the thoughts, and, and one of the images I hold is that I'm not going to fall asleep until the traffic jam subsides and the gaps, the natural gaps between thoughts actually uh, allow themselves to um, be expressed in a certain way, and then we eventually kind of fall through those gaps. The Vipassana component, I think, is the way I would interpret what you're talking about, and that's the waking up quality. That's the more analytic, incisive, literally insight meditation, which is, in fact, um, the great contribution of the Buddhist tradition to, to literally see. That's the more kind of wakeful component. So I, I, I'm curious how that resonates with you, that. Um, I know other some some Tibetan Rinpoches um, sometimes even talk about uh, what they refer to as stupid shamatha, or um, I've actually heard the term animal samadhi, animal shamatha, <laughs> um, where the idea is, you know, you you actually can use your breathing, you can use this kind of putting the brakes on the mind through shamatha meditation. Another way, another way I separate the two shamatha and the pashana is shamatha slows down, stops. The pashna sees, and so to me, it seems that that one could use the breaking component, the slowing down component, 
to breathe, to settle, to open and allow the mind to kind of sedate um, in that regard. Does that resonate with your experience and training? Um, I I know that you, you've done a three-year meditation retreat, right? And, yeah. and so it wouldn't surprise me for uh, an expert meditator to be able to do that. But my my sense would be using shamatha to actually still or pacify the mind mm-hmm. at maximum alertness on a happy day up in a cabin in the mountains is a pretty advanced thing to do. Uh, anxious and tired at 3 a.m., I would think you've got to be really skilled at meditation for shamatha to have that kind of stabilizing, pacifying effect. My my guess would be when you start focusing your attention, it's going to cause you immediately to be able to see more clearly, unless you're so skilled that you can truly quickly stabilize, not do an accidental vipassana of looking around the mind. It's going to make it more clear that you are anxious, that you are worried. And the parts of the brain that are involved in suppression and emotion regulation, these guys are not online at 3 a.m., you know? I don't I don't know if you ever worked night shift uh, before. I, I worked night shift on and off for 10 years. And the sentence, this is an inappropriate thing to share with a colleague, that sentence, you can't form it beyond about 2 a.m., right? <laughs> my, my guess would be Shamat is going to kick stuff up that you don't have the ability to regulate or pacify without quite a tremendous amount of experience under your belt. I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, really interesting. I, I find it compelling. You know, I think to me, let, let me interject this. What came to mind is this uh, quality of uh, witness awareness. Um, again, a, a little bit more in the shamatha lens, and I think this probably where leads a little bit into vipassana. Where to me, when I when I bring what I refer to as a kind of a meditative lens, because I'm not I'm not trained in CBTI. Um, when I bring a meditative lens to my insomnia, what that means to me is a, a quality of witnessing where um, I don't allow myself, you know, the, the display of the mind is still there, um, very much like it might be in my daily meditations. Um, but in this case, what I do, what I implement in my practice is, is a, you know, I, instead of being in the front row of the Cartesian theater, um, I put myself on the back row. Um, because I know if, if I'm in the front row, I'm going to get hooked. You know, that the thought's going to bring up, I'm going to identify with that. It's going to suck me in. I'm lost. And so to me, the meditative component here is going from the front row to the back row, where the display is still there, this kind of witnessing stance. And this, and this parenthetically uh, applies beautifully to a type of lucid dreaming called witnessing lucid dreams, where you, you actually completely lucid in the dream state, what defines this particular type of lucidity is there's no participation whatsoever. You just simply watch the show of your mind without participation. So I, I guess that is the way when I bring meditation to my insomnia, that's the way I work with it. You know, I, I first of all, wake up to it, recognize, oh, there's that. And then, you know, the immediate flip in relationship for, for me is one of instead of developing this adversarial relationship, it's like, well, look at what my mind can do. You know, it's like it completely flips my relationship to it. It's almost celebratory. It's like, this is amazing. And then what I do is how amazing it can be that I can also now step back from that. Let the display shine forth, you know, a little bit like um, campfire sparks just dissolving harmlessly into the nighttime sky. Um, And so 
And in my own personal experience of working with insomnia, that is the, the so-called meditative framework that I bring to it. Um, and I'm curious if that resonates with you. I mean, have you worked Yeah, so theoretically, I mean, uh, philosophically, I don't think there's any reason to say meditation couldn't or shouldn't work for insomnia. I, I think in practice, if you don't really know what you're doing, you just can't control the effect of the meditation well enough. The, the school of meditation that I most often associate myself with is this newer one called Pragmatic Dharma. Huh. And uh, part of what I like about it is the pragmatism. If meditation helps you sleep, you keep it up. <laughs> if, if meditation isn't helping you sleep, uh, do what I do. Keep the crossword puzzle nearby. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I guess it's just different strokes, you know, I mean, different bandwidths and applicability. So uh, with that said, um, one of the questions that we had was, is there any research? Now, let me pull this up real quick because I found this one compelling. Is there any data to support that um, meditation can, in fact, um, substitute or make up for lost sleep? Because if my memory serves me correctly, way back in the days or early days of TM, one of the things that TM, Transcendental Meditation, seemed to espouse was that you could enter states of meditation that were um, virtually identical with certain brain way, you know, uh, brain states associated with sleep, and that therefore, if you engage in extensive meditation, you wouldn't need as much sleep, or you could actually make up your sleep with your meditation practice. I mean, what is what is your scientific and experiential understanding? Yeah, that's a good question. So I need to answer all research questions with the caveat that I haven't remained a scientist since finishing graduate school. And so uh, my, my current science work is as a therapist. So I used to be, you know, I could tell you every study off the top of my head, things that have happened in the last five or six years could easily have slipped past my radar. At least the, the state of the science when I was last totally up to date on it. Uh, this has been a claim since forever that meditation decreases sleep need. Uh, it's really common on retreat that about a week in, you find people wandering the hallways at 4 a.m. who aren't tired during the day. It's a common Zen practice, right? You'll do an all-day, all-night, all-day meditation, and people are fine on the second day. Um, in terms of data, I haven't seen any data supporting that. There's this confound that um, sleep need goes down with age. So... It's not at all uncommon that I'll get a client in their 80s come in and say, I'm sleeping four hours a night. Can you treat my insomnia? So, well, are you tired? No. Um, okay, can you drive a car? Fine. Yes. Do you ever fall asleep at the movies? No. It's like, um, okay, yeah, I'd love to keep working with you, but like, go, go home. <laughs> so <laughs> there's always this compound of long-term meditation and age just go together in a way that, that's hard to extract. I theoretically, I like the idea that meditation is replacing sleep. If you try to think of the purpose of sleep, it seems like there's several things that the brain and body needs to do that would be really hard to do when you're awake. So if I'm constantly handing you index cards, uh, I'm going to need to stop handing them to you for a little while so you're able to sort them. So sleep consolidates memory. Um, if I am constantly breaking things, there's no time to repair them, so sleep allows you to patch your muscles, right, and, and so on. 
sleep, uh, there are things that your body and brain need to do that seem to require a lack of active wake. And there'd be no way to get an organism to do that without knocking it out. I've seen one study that supported this theory pretty obliquely, but it was a memory study with four conditions. So you learn something and then you're tested on how well you memorized it. Uh, condition one is active wake. Number two is a full night's sleep. Number three is a nap. Number four was something like quiet wake. So it wasn't exactly meditation, but you're sitting still doing almost nothing, listening to relaxing classical music. And that last condition actually had the same effect on memory as the two sleep conditions. Uh, there was no improvement in the active wake condition. So I think it makes a lot of sense that the quiescence of mind and body during meditation should give you some of the benefits of sleep, although I, I haven't seen any real, real data. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's really it. resonant with my own experience. It's like you're referring to when I do really long extended retreats. <clears throat> I definitely find my need for um, evening sleep absolutely starts to reduce itself. And, and and as you may or may not know, Tucker, it's very interesting. And I, I've asked a number of teachers this because it seemed like such an outrageous assertion when I first heard it, that um, literally the Buddhas, the, the awakened ones, not just the historical Buddha Shakyamuni who founded the Buddhist tradition, but any um, fully awakened one literally doesn't sleep. And and by that, what what has been clarified for me, which makes a great deal of sense, it doesn't mean that their body is up you know, 24-7 and you're doing all these things. It basically means that there's a, a level of awareness or lucidity, and this is where it ties in so beautifully with these nocturnal meditations, that is in fact a kind of constant consciousness. You know, the, the, the mind retains full awareness and the lucid uh, in this dream state. There is data for that. Oh, fantastic. Oh my goodness. Well, in the that. 90s, there was a study, uh, I think Mason was the name of the first author, on t uh, uh, long-term TM practitioners. And some of them claimed that they could maintain waking consciousness 24 hours a day. And some of them said they couldn't do this. And so she was looking at sleeping EEG between the two groups. And what she found was in only the group of meditators that claimed they could maintain 24-hour consciousness, even in stage three sleep, where uh, excluding REM, as you go deeper into sleep, your brainwaves become more synchronized. So in stage three, there's just these giant like mountains on your EEG. There were these alpha waves, which is a relaxed wakefulness, uh, you're like surfing about on the deltas. Let me just interject real quickly. Tucker. Yeah. So when you're in stage three, sometimes I know stages are conflated into three or four stages. Sometimes I know stage three and four are conflated into what's called the delta sleep. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, just want to make sure we're on the same page. Yeah, so in throughout the night, including in Delta Sleep, there's this persistence of alpha, which is a relaxed waking brainwave. And uh, the images you see is like alpha is like surfing up and down the Delta waves, which to me it was pretty decent evidence that uh, they actually are maintaining this consciousness. Alpha sleep is generally bad. So alpha persisting through the night is associated with non-restorative sleep. It was first discovered in psychiatric inpatients, and it's associated with like uh, chronic pain, uh, PTSD, anxiety, things like that. And I was trying to figure out like what, why would meditators and these highly distressed people have the same signal? And I think hypervigilance is the answer. Um, if your body hurts, you can't let go enough 
to actually fall into a deep sleep. So alpha sleep is terrible. If what you're cultivating is this equanimous meditative vigilance, um, 24 hour a day vigilance would be lovely. Yeah, yeah, kind of a chastity awareness. Well, that's interesting. I wasn't aware of that study. So, well, cool. So, um, have you noticed that in your own retreat experience? I mean, when you go in, do you find yourself having to sleep less? And no, I don't know why. Everybody else does. I never get that. <laughs> well, let me switch, switch gears just a tiny bit here. Let's talk a little bit about um, the role of. Um, supplements or pharmaceutical agents. I know just by the name of, of your site that you're about to launch, Drug Free, I'm completely resonant with that and the debt I've read, you know, the really damaging effects of the sleep agents. Um, so talk to me a little bit about whether you ever, ever under any circumstance recommend prescription strength um, sleep meds. And if you don't, do you recommend supplements like GABA or melatonin, or is there a place in your armamentarium in your toolkit where you do bring in um, supplemental agents? Yeah, so um, I'm where I'm licensed psychologist can't actually recommend prescription meds. So conveniently, I'm I'm able to dodge that question in my practice. Um, again, I'm talking about what may be old data. Um, but the studies I'd seen in, you know, 2010, 2013, that, that area when I was really deep in this stuff, um, was that sleeping pills were making you unconscious, but they weren't necessarily giving you proper sleep, meaning sleep feels subjectively like you disappear and then you show up again. But there's different stages of sleep, and if they're not occurring in the proper, like, order, proportion, and sequence – then you're not getting the benefits of sleep. So for instance, there was a study that found that people who took sleeping pills were actually no less likely to crash their car than people who just had the insomnia. Uh, senior citizens who took sleeping pills were no less likely to fall down and hurt themselves than people who just had the insomnia. Um, it seems like from the patient's perspective, there's not really a way to tell whether it has made you unconscious or given you healthy states of sleep. Um, what I do on myself and usually suggest is um, Benadryl is a pretty decent sleeping pill. The data I've seen on it is it doesn't actually change your sleep architecture. It doesn't change what your brain is doing during sleep. Um, it's not a very strong drug. The hangover shouldn't be too bad. And so what I usually suggest and what I do for myself is every third night, so uh, one night of insomnia, really no problem. You can do anything you want after one night of insomnia. Uh, recently, I've been doing this thing where I'll like fly to Europe, get in Thursday at 11 o'clock at night and start teaching Friday morning. And, and it's fine. You know, one bad night, you do just about anything. After two bad nights, you're getting pretty messed up. Uh, you're probably not driving very well. After three bad nights, you've really become quite useless. Yeah. So um, I think the idea of taking the Benadryl on the third night is a good way of being able to relax about your insomnia. Okay, I can handle one, I can kind of handle two, I don't have to worry about three. There's some recent data of Benadryl causing uh, dementia in seniors. I don't know to what, you know, how often you have to take it or how much or something, but it's a very old drug, it's not very strong. So I, I use that one. The other one I like is melatonin. It's generally sold in absurdly high doses um, you shouldn't be taking more than three milligrams. You can buy a 10 milligram tablet. 
the dosage data I've seen is like three quarters of a milligram is generally sufficient. And where melatonin is particularly useful is insomnia caused by circadian issues. Yes, exactly. So jet lag, you know, flying through yeah. transit. Re resetting yeah. your the clock, basically, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, and then, so speak to me, because I'm about to fly to Korea. So this is a very practical question. <laughs> um, and I'm literally landing on a Thursday, and I'm going to start teaching on, on uh, a Friday. And I, I'm, you know, flying in business class, so I'll be able to sleep. But what, what are the best ways to implement both those strategies? So Benadryl, third night in, um, that can help facilitate uh, episodes of insomnia. But where and when would you start taking melatonin? I mean, if I'm getting on the plane to Korea, should I start taking it um, when I'm getting in the plane, or where where do I start swallowing that? Um, the data I've seen on that has actually varied tremendously. Um, I think generally what we do is if the data conflicts, we go with the one that matches our personal experience, right? So I find the pill actually knocks me out in about a half hour. Melatonin is a is a chemical that your body is producing. And so taking melatonin has effects on endogenous melatonin production. Um, also seeing light suppresses uh, internal melatonin production. Right. So one thing you can do with jet lag is insomniacs in particular get really phobic of sleep deprivation. Sleep deprivation is your friend in terms of trying to fall asleep. So particularly uh, going to Korea, traveling west, See if you can stay up for 24 hours, you know, uh, just add however many hours you need to mm -hmm. not go to sleep until Korea time, uh, nighttime. Mm -hmm. So I would take the melatonin around the time you'd want to go to sleep in Korean time. You mm -hmm. want to try to shift your body to that schedule um, as soon as you can. I also I, I just got back from from teaching in, in Holland and in Finland. And I would find, you know, no matter how exhausted I was. The first couple nights traveling east, I just can't sleep through the night. I wake up at 3 a.m., ready for breakfast, ready to go. Um, right. So I take a really tiny amount, three-quarters of a milligram or something, at bedtime, and then leave another tiny tablet next to the bed. Because if huh? you get up, turn the lights on, go to the bathroom, try to find the melatonin, this light and activity is waking the mind up. So I sleep with a mask on. I keep the pill in the water near the bed. Chug it and uh, usually helps me sleep through the night. Okay. Uh, just one more thought on this is the reason I suggest the third night thing is this really common mistake is at 3 a.m. you absolutely surrender and take a trazodone or something. And uh, this is going to leave you terribly hungover. So the decision about whether tonight is a sleeping pill night should be a decision you make at bedtime, not, uh, not halfway through the night. Yeah. So do you have any other tips for, for uh, jet lag um, and, and international travel? I mean, east and west, you alter your strategies depending on which direction. You go. Yeah, west is easier because going west, you have to stay up later. And that's easy. I mean, it, it ultimately is within your control to stay up for a very long time. Uh, sit in uncomfortable postures. Don't close your eyes. Um caffeine tricks like that going east is hard because you need to go to sleep really early and staying awake is within your control going to sleep is outside of your control um so uh, tips would be one is trying to avoid alcohol the effects of alcohol in your sleep are, are just terrifically bad i learned this when i was in college and at that point, I wasn't ready to just give up substances. So I thought, oh, let's try marijuana. Like, so I, 
ended up getting into that stuff. Um, <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> um, the data on marijuana for your sleep actually is, it's actually quite good for your sleep in infrequent doses. It seemed like nights one and two were good. Night three was neutral, and by night four, it's bad. Long-term use seems to be uh, depressing the amplitude of your EEG. And the the issue with pretty much every drug is no matter how well it works, very quickly stops working. And uh, then you're dealing with tolerance and withdrawal, so you need more and more of it. It's harder to get off of it. I, I actually do, do think marijuana is a decent occasional sleep aid, but um, I, for me personally, I find it makes me too giddy and, and uh, I don't want to fall asleep. I, I just moved to California where it's legal and I, I haven't, haven't used it. <laughs> um, so, so in terms of jet lag, uh, one would be avoiding alcohol. Another would be um, meals or a circadian cue for bedtime. So the airline doesn't really let you do this, although I fly those budget airlines that don't feed you anyways. One, one trick would be to get your meal schedule on Korea time. Uh, as soon as the flight takes off the ground, I adjust my phone and anything that tells the time. I adjust it to destination time as soon as I get on the airplane so that mm -hmm. my mind is starting to think in terms of timing over there. So mm -hmm. um, light cues, meal, light cues is in if it's supposed to be nighttime, keep the lights dim, put the eye shade on. If it's supposed yeah. to be daytime, turn the, you know, turn your overhead light on. Uh, things like that are cues to the brain that it's time to wake up. Perfect. And so to come back, uh, follow a question with the melatonin. So after the first night, would you then reiterate that type of approach with melatonin until you you find your rhythms kind of back on regular cycles? Or how would you recommend? Uh, yeah. So what I personally do is the first two nights, I'll do the pill at bedtime, second pill if I wake up in very small doses. And then I try to back off. So third night, I don't take anything. I leave the pill nearby. Um there are two unrelated processes that lead to sleep and sleepiness. One is the homeostatic, meaning the longer you've been awake, the more adenosine is building up. And the more adenosine there is, the more your brain wants to go to sleep. The other is the circadian process, which is, there's a few hormones, but melatonin is the primary one. And uh, so when your brain thinks it ought to be nighttime, melatonin gets high. And these two processes aren't inherently synchronized. So over the course of a few days, they will generally synchronize, but you can kind of, like if you get adenosine really high, you'll sleep no matter what, right? If I keep you up for 40 hours, it doesn't matter what time of day it is, you'll, you'll sleep like a corpse as soon as you go to sleep. So the other part would be trying to increase adenosine. So, you know, that first night in Korea, don't try to sleep more than six hours. Mm -hmm. um, that'll leave you tired enough by the next night that it can partly overwhelm some of the circadian disruption. Yeah, well, that's really helpful. And so along these lines, this is great because this is a, a segue to where I wanted to go. Talk to us a little bit, um, Tucker, about general sleep hygiene principles. I mean, we've been circumambulating a lot, um, but I, I'm a, a, a real passionate advocate of both um, Western and Eastern sleep hygiene techniques. Um, and so from a kind of a, a clinical perspective, we've already talked about the role of um, light, where it plays. Um, and so if you could share a little bit about your personal experience and your clinical expertise in terms of just classic good sleep hygiene tips, I think that would be terrific. 
Yeah, I think honestly the number one nowadays is your phone is not allowed in your bedroom unless you have a really high degree of discipline. Um, this gets the most airplay related to the blue light. It is true that blue light is the strongest uh, the, the strongest color in terms of affecting your circadian rhythms. Red or orange light is the weakest. It's probably the evolutionary explanation that blue light means sky, it's daytime. The only light you would have seen at nighttime is fire, which is why orange or red doesn't affect it much. Uh, I don't think it's so much the blue light coming from the screen as the like addictive uh, and ah, there's some Buddhist word that's not quickly coming to mind, but like, like the hungry ghost, you know? Everything you ever wanted is on the internet. Companionship, sex, anything you could ever want to buy, study. Um, the internet is just not conducive to wakefulness. So I really think this is tip number one. Nothing in your bedroom should be able to connect to the internet or have a communicative function. Um, and in the middle of the night, willpower is very hard to exert. So any little nudges you can create that would make it harder to get on the internet. So power your phone all the way down. To turn it on would take 60 seconds, but that's 60 seconds to change your mind. Um, I've had people unplug the router, so there's no Wi-Fi. And you know you can just plug it right back in, but anything that would make it a little bit harder um, to use the phone, I think of this for most people nowadays, the biggest point of sleep hygiene. Yeah. And when should people start to um, detox, so to speak? I mean, I, I, I've come across different data about, you know, starting to pull away 90 minutes before you go to sleep, actually dimming literally the lights in your room. But in particular, in terms of pulling ourselves away from um, tablets and phones and whatnot, whatnot, whatnot how, how far in advance of sleep to really initiate the, the cleanest sleep, so to speak? Um. So my my like base style of psychotherapy is motivational interviewing. And one of the main principles of motivational interviewing is changes that look like the easiest thing in the world from the outside can be impossibly hard from the inside. And so the change you should make is the one you will actually do. Mm -hmm. um, my work life generally would not allow 90 minutes every night where I can't touch anything with a communicative function. So I can't tell the people on your show to do that. I'm not going to do that. That's, that's hypocritical. Um, I think the answer is the most you'll actually do. I'll really do 30 minutes. <laughs> and, and if you can really do 30 minutes and you love it, make it 35. If you can really do five, do five, and then see if you can bring it up to eight. Yeah, no, that's really, really helpful. And so how about um, sunshine? I mean, I, I've also come across some data that getting a, a good dose of sunshine uh, during the day, making sure, um, you know, your your rhythms are, you could say, almost reinstated by that can also help with good sleep hygiene. Is that your experience? Generally, so the way that light affects your circadian rhythm is pretty complicated Based on your, but if we're going to presume you haven't just traveled across many time zones and you don't have an, un, you know, the kind of person who only sleeps well from 4 a.m. to noon or something, if we exclude these groups and assume you have a pretty standard circadian rhythm, uh, yes, sunlight is critical. So the biggest cue to the brain of when it's nighttime is when it was nighttime yesterday. 
The second biggest cue is light exposure. And if you turn on all the lights in your room and I measure it with a lux meter, it might be 150, 200 lux. If you go outside on a bright day, it might be 150,000 lux. I had never noticed this until I saw the data, but it is exorbitantly brighter outside than it is inside. So yeah, getting, getting bright light during the day is a signal to the brain that this is the daytime. Yeah. Uh, conversely, I've been sleeping with a sleeping mask on my face since I started studying sleep 17 years ago or whatever. And if I go on a trip and forget it, I have ace bandaged my head. I'll like tie pajama pants around my face. Uh, inhibiting light during the night is so good for your sleep. I'm completely addicted to it. I can't sleep without it. Yeah, and also temperature, right? Isn't 66 degrees or something like that the, the sweet spot because your body temperatures decrease when you enter the deeper stages of sleep? Yeah, so Q1 would be when was nighttime yesterday. Second most powerful is light. Third most powerful, and I think there's quite a big gap in power. Light is a big deal, temperature less so. But yeah, if you picture our ancestors living uh, without modern shelters, it's always getting colder at nighttime. I don't know that it necessarily... I have not heard of a particular temperature that's the right one to hit, but causing body temperature to drop is a cue that it's bedtime. So uh, I'll usually have people keep the house cooler in the evening. Um, uh, I used to, when I, when I lived in Tucson, I had a jacuzzi and I'd go in that every night because that heats your body up, get out of the jacuzzi, temperature starts quickly falling. Right, right. And then I know this is probably idiosyncratic, um, but how about napping? Um, I, I consider myself one of the most gifted nappers in the cosmos. <laughs> one of the things I developed in my three-year retreat that was a lifesaver for me because, you know, we slept very, very little and we had these, you know, really long sessions and I used to just tough it, tough it out. And then finally one day I said, this is like, what? this is ridiculous. And so I, I was in robes, you know, I throw the robe over my head, crash out, <laughs> literally 30 minutes later, you know, click back up. I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm on it. So are there any general rules, Tucker, about um, napping and when you know when one should draw the line or is it really pretty individual is there a certain point where you just say yeah you know too late for, for taking a nap i should probably just tough it out and go to bed is there any data around that i would say it's individual so napping is definitely bad for insomnia um what napping is doing is removing adenosine adenosine is this chemical that's building up uh, over the course of wakefulness, it creates pressure to sleep. So it's removing adenosine, but melatonin's coming on at the same time as it as it always would. So napping is desynchronizing these two processes that create sleep and sleepiness. Mm -hmm. However, that only matters to the degree that it matters. I was saying earlier that with meditation, um, the subjective and objective measures split, where objectively you're sleeping worse, subjectively you're sleeping better. And I would say the truth is the subjective data. Uh, no one has ever come into my clinic saying they have insufficient delta power during N3 sleep and could I please, right? <laughs> uh, if you feel like you're sleeping well and you're not tired, you are. And, and I don't think there's any higher or better standard than that to aspire to. So napping is ultimately bad for nighttime sleep. Napping is certainly necessary for safety precautions, right? So if you've got to do a long drive and you slept four hours last night, absolutely take a nap. Uh, napping is great for memory consolidation. It's great for increasing alertness. Uh, we met through Michael Taft. I, I was on his, his podcast a couple weeks ago, actually. And, oh, oh, that's right. He he just got to Colorado yesterday, right? Yeah. 
we actually got together. So thanks for that introduction. Cool. Um, yeah, Michael said he's taken a nap nearly every day for the last 20 years. Um, th th there's a lot of benefits in terms of alertness and memory. So I think it's just a trade-off. If it's hurting your nighttime sleep or if you're an insomniac, uh, don't do it. Yeah, and then, and then also, you know, sort of on the other end is exercise. Um, probably the same sort of thing. I mean, are there any guidelines in terms of uh, don't exercise after X, you know, 8, 8 p.m. or whatever? Is that a purely individual thing? Or are, are there any guidelines about that? Because I, I understand exercise is, is certainly in my case, it absolutely helps me fall asleep, you know, and I think there is some data along those lines. But from your from your expertise, recommendations around exercise and when to draw the line? Yeah, I, I hold a pretty uncommon philosophy of science that would uh, be interesting, but probably too long to get into. <laughs> um, but the, the guidelines keep changing, supposedly in response to the data. I actually think the data actually keeps changing in response to the guidelines, um, which, which causes me to take it with, with a grain of salt. It used to be the data was don't exercise too close to bed. There's newer data that says it doesn't matter what time you exercise. Um, I think the general principle is exercising makes it easier to fall asleep and increases sleep depth. Um, particularly regular exercise is going to be uh, going for a run today may not actually help you sleep all that much tonight. But regular exercise definitely contributes to sleep health. Yeah, for sure. And then food. I mean... People can eat a big meal, it helps them fall asleep, but I can imagine there's kind of a rebound effect around that. Is that also um, individual? It's just like what works for you, go for it, or? I'm smiling because I, uh, you know, I always talk about this when I'm, when I'm working with, with, uh, with clients, and I always talk about the lion and the giraffe when we get here, and so I got to tell you about the lion and the giraffe. A lion sleeps about 20 hours a day. So if you're a lion, Lunch is a gazelle, right? I don't know. What's a gazelle? 20,000 calories. Um, you need a few minutes with an opposite sex or in certain awesome cases, same sex lion. Um, and, then, and then you're ready to go to sleep, right? <laughs> uh, one gazelle, a few minutes for sex, and, and you're done for the day. Uh, a giraffe is awake 20 hours a day. If you were a multi-ton leaf eater, you are terrifically busy, right? <laughs> so... The, the, the idea here is that evolution is actually selecting for sleep yeah. uh, as much as it's possible. And within our own day-to-day -day experience, this is a little bit similar. So if you are hungry, the evolutionary drive is food. Don't go to sleep. You need to eat. If you're stuffed, not exactly an evolutionary drive, but energy needs to be available for digestion. So... Um, you want to go to sleep midway between stuffed and hungry. I think especially for a lot of older people, this seems to be a challenge that for whatever reason, older people seem to move dinner earlier. So a lot of the seniors that I work with will finish dinner around 530 and make breakfast at eight. And going 14 and a half hours without food is a signal to the body that you've got work to do. It's, it's not time to sleep. You should be hunting or foraging. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. And so there's another a question that came in from one of my members um, is just to kind of dovetail back into insomnia specifically. So uh, if you if one wakes up and, you know, it's like, oh, there it is again, you know, you, you, you just click into that default mode network that says, oh, I'm screwed, you know, I'm up for the next X period of time. What What is your um, understanding of 
how long should they hang out in bed and give her a crack or, you know, get up and, and read the book or do anything but turn on the light, you know, the computers, I should say. Are there any guidelines for when to um, get out of bed and, you know, try to um, kind of recuperate that way before you return back to sleep? How long should one lie in bed before yeah, I would actually get up pretty quickly, um, no longer than 10 minutes. Uh-huh. Um, there's a couple reasons. One is you're training the brain that the bed is an acceptable place to be awake and bounce around. Um, but the more important is y- your brain is organized evolutionarily back to front. So if I hit you in the back of the head, you might go unconscious, die, be unable to swallow. If I hit you in the front of the head, you'd be bad at planning, bad at math, bad at suppression of emotions. When I used to teach at University of Arizona, I would say, you know, if you get hit in the front of the head, you have to transfer to ASU. Um, And... Uh, the brain goes to sleep front to back. So your like human intellectual functions are the first thing that goes offline. This is why, you know, like I was saying before, on night shift, you share everything with your colleagues. Um, so if you're lying in bed, your thought process is going to be very, very dumb. You know, I've found myself worrying for hours in bed about things that certainly won't happen. I've often found myself worrying about things that can't happen or like (laughs) um, logical impossibility fantasies. I had this nightmare last night that I was at a, I was teaching a meditation retreat and people wouldn't stop talking. And the reality of this is like, people go to meditation retreats to meditate. This isn't going to happen. This also, as far as tragedies go, is is not a top 10 sort of a problem. But I, I really couldn't sleep last night out of the like stress and agitation that people might talk on my retreat. So the idea of getting out of bed and doing something, for me, the biggest factor there is you're waking your brain up a little bit. And you actually want that. It's going to lead to logical processing of information, the ability to calm down, get out of those dreamlike, uh, illogical, distressing emotional sort of thoughts. Yeah. You know, I have to, you probably heard this quote, if you haven't, Mark Twain, you know, along the lines, he said, you know, some of the worst things in my life never actually happened. <laughs> and certainly that's uh, kind of indicative of what we tend to say. <laughs> it's a wonderful term that, that you may know it in a Sanskrit called prapancha, you know, this, this yeah. ability of the mind to, to, to literally proliferate. You know, you have a little seed and this is what this kind of harks back a little bit to what i was talking about earlier the way i relate to it is i can see this proliferation quality um in in living painful color when i'm um in these spaces and and, and instead of wrestling with it i find it really interesting again just to watch that display and then notice how that's only slightly obtunded in, in my daytime when i'm a little bit more distracted but those same principles really they, it's revelatory what can happen in the in the um sleep dream and even insomniac state and and i find it personally very interesting to approach it um almost as a first person scientist you know it's like how how is my mind playing out what can i learn about how my mind plays out and how can i use these uh, obstacles otherwise as opportunities for greater self-exploration and discovery and i also want to interject that you know for, for listeners who are um, obviously interested in lucid dreaming you know one of the most successful techniques. In fact, I just did it this morning. I had a, a beautiful lucid dream this morning. 
um, based on the wake and back to bed method. And Tucker, you may not be aware of this, but one of you actually probably with your traffic with Stephen LeBarge, you have heard of it. You know, yeah, where yeah, yeah. 16 to 20 fold increase in lucidity, especially during what I call prime time train time, which is, you know, latter parts of the evening when you're mostly in, in REM sleep anyway. But to me, um, I find it extraordinarily effective and data shows that this is in fact the case to get up, do what you need to do. Again, stay away from the blue light, stay away from electronics as best you can, and then just go back to sleep. That, that technique in and of itself is um, one of my go-to methods for attaining lucidity. And so let, let's kind of close with this. I mean, I know you've had a little bit of traffic with our dear friend, Stephen LeBarge, who lives in your area, or at least used to in, in Tucson. Um, and so to what extent, if any, do these nocturnal practices have in your personal life or, or your work altogether? So actually, I only met Steve once, and um, I was just a total fanboy. Like, I shamelessly asked him for a selfie. Um, and that was <laughs> – that, that was our only interaction. Um, I used to lucid dream a lot when I was younger. I didn't um, – I didn't have any instruction or sense of how to make use of it. It would just occur naturally. And um, so, you know, when you start lucid dreaming, I think probably everybody has to get the two Fs out of the way with, with you know, flying and sex. Yeah. And um, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Took a second. <laughs> um, once I got that out of the way, I didn't know what to do with them. I would get bored. Like I would practice conjuring. And uh, I could make objects appear and disappear. And then I tried to make people, and I could make people appear and disappear. And um, there was one lucid dream I was in for hours where I didn't know what to do with it. So I called my friend Mark. I mean, I conjured him up, and we talked about consciousness and the nature of lucid dreaming. Oh, wait, um, so excuse me. So you're in the dream and you call him, or this is you woke up the next? Yeah, in the dream, I conjured him. I I, I made him show up and sit next to me. And um, uh, we talked at length about lucid dreaming and and uh, and consciousness. I had maybe one more since then where the most interesting thing was um, I knew what time it was <clears throat> to the minute. Um, I told myself I had seven minutes left in the dream and I was going to wake up at such and such a time. And I woke up and the, the clock had exactly that oh. time on it. Um, oh. But... Um, I, I personally just haven't made much use of lucid dreaming. Uh, it's only recently that I, when I started teaching, I taught a semester-long class on sleep at the University of Arizona. And it was only when I started doing that that I started getting into the realm of how much you can do in lucid dreams. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, um, there is a great deal. And this is one of the things that uh, separates, at least in my kind of um cartographies of the nocturnal practices. It's one of the things that separates lucid dreaming from dream yoga. You know, the, the, the kind of Hegelian term I use is dream yoga transcends but includes lucid dreaming. In other words, lucid dreaming is a platform. And then it's exactly like you said, Tucker, I think it's, again, it's revelatory what you said is that um, lucid dreaming, yes, it has tremendous potential um, for entertainment for the two Fs, um, but, at a certain point, it's like how many reruns? Like, I mean, how many times can you go see this movie? And so, this, of course, at least in my uh, view, is where dream yoga comes in. And then you have, you know, just systems of training where you can work with one's mind under the basic kind of guise that you know what are dreams made of? Dreams are made of mind, <clears throat> and 
we can use, um, you know, in the dream state, the, the this kind of distilled consciousness, as Evan Thompson and others write about it, to really explore the nature of mind in, in a kind of a personal laboratory. Um, and so what we're doing with the, the group and our club here, so to speak, is starting, it's kind of iterative, what we're talking about here of our entire charters. We start with infrastructure, basic sleep hygiene, understanding both the kind of the physiology, cycles of sleep, sleep stages. We pay homage to the science behind it. We understand better how our bodies and our minds work in the sleeping arena. And then from there, we augment that with daily meditations. And I'm sure you're probably aware of this data, Tucker, that a number of studies have shown that meditators have more lucid dreams. Um, and so we engage in certain meditations to facilitate that kind of the diurnal component. Then we launch into lucid dreaming proper, these obviously are they're, they're linear just for kind of pedag pedagogical purposes, but they all bootstrap each other. You know? um, and so then we engage in lucid dreaming. And then, you know, just to where we left off, then we take off even further into dream yoga, where it's like, okay, now we can use the nighttime mind in this way, which has been articulated by wisdom traditions for thousands of years, to explore the nature of mind and reality using the medium of the dream. And then to come back to the 24 seven spaces, then of course, as you know, yoga nidra or the ability to maintain awareness even in deep dreamless sleep, which now scientists are actually trying to substantiate. Um, and so we can close with this. Do you have any um, final tips for our listeners in terms of, you know, we started with insomnia. Are there any kind of closing comments you could say, um, you know, directing people back to your work? Your site's going to be launched in a couple of weeks. I want to um, create the opportunity for us because part of the charter of what we're doing is cross-pollinating, creating a platform where we can bring gifted scholars, teachers, spiritual practitioners on life from all over to share this collective body of wisdom and um, cross-pollinate ideas. And so I want to leave with the opportunity for you to share with our listeners where they can go for more information for you, from you, um, the site that you're launching, how they can contact you, um, and then maybe some final comments about how this work has affected you, obviously, not only professionally, but personally. I mean, how are you a different person um, because of your study and your practice? Um, gee, that was a lot. Okay, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll try to hit most of that. Uh, in terms of final thoughts, one is, yeah, so my, uh, my website, drugfreesleep.com, it's mostly walking people through a pretty standardized CBTI protocol. Uh, CBTI works incredibly well. The the data on it is 40, you know, 45 years of data. Um, the National Institutes of Health recommends CBTI as the first line of defense for insomnia, which is funny because it's, it's only used as the last line of defense. Uh, compliance is pretty hard. Uh, I have had, in the years I've been doing it, I've had one patient fail the treatment. Um, the reason is by the time people have gotten to me, they've failed out of their primary care. They've failed out of the sleep lab. Um, they get CBT as the absolute last line of defense. And if I told them to sleep upside down, they would do it, you know? <laughs> um, so the idea is CBTI works really well. And there's a lot of people interested in how to increase dissemination. So there's so few therapists who are properly trained in sleep medicine that, the idea of getting it on a website like I'm doing or on an app, th there's a lot of interest in that. The big caveat I would give is 
doing it through an app is like a one size fits all kind of program. And one size does fit most, you know? <laughs> um, but people with comorbid medical conditions, particularly psychiatric conditions like um, uh, bipolar disorder, for instance, can be made worse by sleep deprivation. Uh, one thought would be if you have or may have something else going on besides insomnia, to make sure you're seeing a practitioner who's actually treating you, the general online advice may backfire in any particular situation. Um, if I had one tip to give for insomnia, um, I'll give two. Tip number one would be don't panic. <laughs> it's okay if you don't sleep tonight. It doesn't matter. Enjoy the night. Um, people who sleep great always wish they had more hours of the day. You've got it. You know? <laughs> this is the time to read your book um, and so on. Tip number two would be uh, structure supersedes sleep right now. So um, instead of trying to constantly sleep because you're tired and taking the day off to lie in bed, uh, try to sleep when you want to be asleep and try to stay awake when you want to stay awake. Mm -hmm. um, was there anything else from your question that I have missed? Well, the final one was um, how has this, how has your study affected you personally? I mean, how, how has it changed you and your path? Um, uh, and how does it continue to inform your own trajectory as a um, spiritual practitioner? <laughs> um, Gee, sleep's really important. I mean, I just moved here. I live on an island in the San Francisco Bay, so the, the island here is pretty chill. But I live in San Francisco where, where people in their 50s live college lifestyles, you know. So uh, a lot of my friends stay out till 3 o'clock in the morning. And, oh, God, you know, I have no interest in <laughs> I love sleep. I feel so much better sleeping than uh, doing what I could, whatever I would be doing that would keep me up all night. Um, I think that's one thing. I've come to really prioritize consistency of sleep. Another is that recognition of don't panic. If every now and then there is something worth staying up all night for, it's fine. I feel a lot more flexible in terms of I know what the trade-offs are for not getting a good night's sleep. But every now and then, you know, like traveling to Europe or something, every now and then it's worth it to, yeah. to trade off not getting a good night's sleep. Um, yeah. uh this is maybe a big topic to start at the end, but where mindfulness helps a lot is the concept of sleepiness. You know, after you get a bad night's sleep, this papancha, this conceptual elaboration, I like to sometimes accuse my students of being papanchaholics. Um, the the, the oh. papancha is telling you, you're tired, you're tired, you're tired, you're tired, you know? If you actually watch the sleepiness, this is what the data shows too. Even after really bad sleep for nights on end, you're okay sometimes. Uh, if you look at tests of alertness, what you find even with severe sleep deprivation is most of the tests people are doing fine. And then you'll get these gaps of like seconds where there seems to be no attention and no presence. Mm -hmm. So mindfulness really helped me deal with insomnia or nights where I've chosen not to get enough sleep. Most of the next day I'm actually feeling fine and the periods when I'm feeling too tired to function, don't feel so bad. I recognize, just hang out. You know, this will pass. Yeah, beautiful. Well, and so this will pass. Thank you, my friend. Really, I so appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to uh, you know, educate us. You're you're a true wealth of information. Um, you know, oh, that's so sweet. Yeah, scientifically and uh, you know, experientially, meditatively, it's just absolutely resonant with the type of charter we're engaging in here. And so. 
Um, thank you so much for spending the, the time with us. Um, we hope to have you back on the show sometime down the road when we well, have great. Yeah, further questions to tap into your resources. And uh, in the meantime, um, big uh, gratitude from all of us here at the club. And uh, we'll, we'll keep you in our thoughts and we'll invite you back in when we have another opportunity. So thank you. Well, thanks so much, Andrew. Take care. See you.